When I was a little kid, I was fascinated by bows and arrows. And in fact, my earliest memory is that of my second birthday. I was just two years old. And my cousin Debbie was born just two weeks before I was. So we had a double birthday party out at our Grandma Emma's house to celebrate our birthdays together. I remember that I asked Grandma for a bow and arrow for my birthday. You know, not, not a real one, one of those little rubber suction cups on the tip of the arrow. But I was worried that the gifts would somehow get mixed up. And then my cousin would get my gift. <laughs> so you see, I even had a little bit of a selfish streak even at age two. But as it turned out, Debbie got her cowgirl stuff and I got my Indian stuff and, and all was good. But when I was growing up, if I found a stick that could be trimmed and bent and shaped into a bow and a stick or two that was straight enough to make an arrow, I went to work. And while growing up, I made dozens of bows and arrows. Now, my dad did some bow hunting for a while, and while I would watch him practice for hours day after day before bow hunting season, and even though I've given archery a shot or two over the years, I lost my interest in bows and arrows because mainly I wasn't really strong enough to draw back the arrow. I was a skinny, scrawny, weak kid. And in those days, they didn't make all those composite bows with curved plastic grips and finger tabs that help you hang on to the string. And when you really aren't strong enough to draw back the string while holding the string and the notch of the arrow and trying to keep the front of the arrow resting against the bow, it really can be dangerous. You're moving the bow and arrow all over the place. People are ducking, getting out of the way. And who knows where that arrow might go if it's released too soon. And Well, I mentioned last week when the psalmist Solomon compared parenting to archery and releasing and directing arrows And when he compares children to arrows in the hand of a warrior, the metaphor suggests that the arrows must be shaped and sharpened, and they must be released with great skill. I mentioned that in Solomon's day, you didn't go down to the local sporting goods store and and buy arrows. Neither did you find them lying on the ground. Sticks aren't arrows by nature. They had to be carefully shaped and sharpened, and children are the same. And this implies work and consistency and skill. Children don't grow into straight, sharp arrows by being left to themselves or the TV set or to their smartphones or to public institutions or any organization. It takes diligent effort on the part of a wise father, on the part of a wise mother to bring them up in the training of the Lord. Children, as do arrows, need to be skillfully shaped and sharpened But like sticks, each one comes with certain characteristics and inclinations that are already built in. Each stick is different. Each type of wood is different. Each stick has its own particular strengths and weaknesses. Some are hardwood, some are soft, some are lighter than others, and some are more resilient when bent or flexed, and some are more naturally resistant to moisture, insects, and decay. And in the same way that the stick has certain unique characteristics, so does each child. Children don't come to us generically, as it were, with no particular traits. Or to change the metaphor, they don't come as a generic lump of clay waiting to be formed and molded into what we want them to be. Children come with particular traits, with bents, inclinations, that are unique to each one. Now, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6 gives us the right way 
the right way to direct and shape our arrows, how to train up our child in the way they should go, so when they are released, they are aimed for life, they are at targets pleasing to God. Please turn once again to the 22nd chapter of Proverbs, the 6th verse, page 798 in the Bibles in the chair racks. Verse 6 of Proverbs 22. Train up a child in the way he should go, even when he was old, he will not depart from it. And this proverb may be very well one of the most quoted, one of the most memorized, and yet the most misunderstood and misapplied verses in the Bible. Now listen to what Chuck Swindoll has to say about it. This verse in most biblical child-rearing manuals has a standard interpretation that goes something like this. Rear your children as moral, upright, God-fearing, church-going kids. Be sure they carry a Bible to church, attend lots of Sunday school classes, and each summer attend Christian camps. Enforce your rules and regulations with consistency and discipline. Make sure they learn the Ten Commandments, the Golden Rule, and several key verses of Scripture. Teach them to pray and be sure they come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. After all, they're eventually going to sow their wild oats as they are certain to rebel. They'll live in that rebellious lifestyle for a while. Then once their oats are sown and they tire their fling with the wild side of life, when they're old and decrepit, they'll come back to the Lord. But only if you raise them right. Chuck Swindoll adds, I don't know about you, but I don't find that very comforting. Frankly, that is not much of a promise. Yet for some reason has become the Christian method of child rearing. Why would anyone take comfort in that is beyond me. It doesn't sound like something God would hold out to us saying, this is wise counsel. Do this and everything will turn out well. Not only is that popular interpretation of Proverbs 22.6 not very comforting, but it's untrue. As parents, as grandparents, we need to know what is true. We need to know exactly what God is promising in Proverbs 22.6. And if we dig beneath the surface and go back to the Hebrew language to discover what the human writer and the direction of the Holy Spirit is really saying, we'll find something very different than what we typically have been taught. Because this verse contains a very refreshing, a common sense approach to shaping and directing our children. It's a practical guide with a tremendous promise, an encouraging promise. It gives us realistic direction in how we are to rear our children. Now, the Hebrew language of the Old Testament is the language of artists. It's the language of poets. Almost every word has a metaphorical connection to something in the experience of the Hebrew people. Hebrew poetry, especially like the Psalms and Proverbs and Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, uses allusion and word pictures that convey meaning by analogy. So the rich tableau of cultural association stands even behind the simplest sentences. So Proverbs 22.6 drips with poetic allusion and metaphor. We're going to take it word by word and phrase by phrase for a little bit as we unpack and look at the word pictures that are contained in this text. It says, train up a child. The word translated train up comes from the Hebrew word kanak. Kanak. It's, it's the hard C-H sound, which I have a hard time saying. So if I just say kanak, that's, that's okay. Kanak means to dedicate, to, to consecrate. It's used only four times in the Old Testament, three 
in the reference to dedicating a building and, and here of dedicating a child, as it were. It's, it's interesting to know that the noun form of this verb means mouth, the mouth. In similar Semitic languages, such as Aramaic and Arabic, the term means the palate, the roof of the mouth, the jaws, the lower part of the mouth, the lower jaw of a horse, mouth. And there's an Arabic term which is a very close cousin to this Hebrew word, and it's used to describe the custom of a midwife. When after the baby has just been delivered, the midwife dips her index finger into a pool of crushed dates or grapes, and then she would massage the palate in the newborn's mouth. And this trained, or rather encouraged, the baby's sucking instinct so that nursing came more easily. And in keeping with the mouth idea, the term in Arabic also means to make experienced or to make submissive, as one does by putting a bit in the mouth of a horse. The bit in the mouth is used to train the horse to submit. So the term kanak, we have the mingled ideas of dedicate, train, the mouth, make experienced. And from the horse's bridle illusion, a sense of subduing through negative reinforcement. For the purpose of what? Teaching and guiding. But it also carries a meaning of training in the sense of creating a thirst for the right things. Develop a thirst in your child by guiding them, in your children, by guiding them, by dedicating them to the right things. This brings us to the second word, train up a child. The Hebrew word translated child is also intriguing. We tend to think of a child as a little boy or girl, but the Hebrew word na'ar, N-A-A-R, is much broader. It's used to refer to young people in all stages of growth. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, 21, Na'ar is, is a newborn. In Exodus 2, 6, Moses is a three-month-old Na'ar. In 1 Samuel 1, 22, Samuel, the Na'ar, has yet to be weaned. 1 Samuel 3, 1 uses the term to describe Samuel as a young lad serving Eli in the temple, the same way that we had the Na'ar, the young lads, the young men today serving by collecting the offering. And then later they'll pick up uh, the hymn books and the Bibles as well. Na'ar in Genesis 21.12 pictures Ishmael as a preteen, while in Genesis 37.2, Joseph is a 17-year-old Na'ar. The young men who served as David's messengers in 1 Samuel 25.5 are called Na'ar, as was a young man of marriageable age in Genesis 34.19. So while Na'ar can be of a little child, it can also be a young man or a woman of any age. It's used of a young man or woman still living under a parent's roof or in the care of an authority figure. In fact, in the Hebrew Talmud, a na'ar was up to 24 years old. So this entire frame from birth to releasing from the home is called the time frame of training up. Train up, create a thirst in, build into the child the experience of submission as you would train a horse that has been wild. Now we can relate to that in parenthood. A child of all ages in the realm of the home in the way he should go. The clear meaning of the phrase turns, or the clear meaning of the verse turns on the phrase in the way he should go. Quite frankly, most parents calmly think there's but one way to train a child or one way a child should go. Their way. 
They may think that the way they are created and still is the right way. After all, they don't know any other way or they take an eclectic approach and, well, that seemed to work for my friends and his, you know, for his parents or that and the other. And then they collect and they say, okay, that must be the way. Or they may find some method in a pop psychology manual or, or secular humanist book on parenting. Now, if you have a New American Standard Bible with call-in references in, I want to point out the literal translation. It's out in the, in the column reference. And if you don't have the column reference, just listen. The little, literal Hebrew is according to his way, in accordance with his way. It's not our way. It's not the way taught in the Ten Ways books or the Six Ways books. I just happened to Google this week, oh, Ten Ways to Rear Your Child, and came up with millions of hits. Six Ways to Rear Your Child, came up with millions of hits. And it's, or nor is it the way that's taught broadly that every child is under. It's in accordance with that particular child's way, in, in accordance with his way. The word that is translated in this phrase, or the, the, the key word in this phrase is derrick, which means way or road. So turn over to the 30th chapter of Proverbs, verses 18 and 19. Chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 18 and 19, page 809. Because dairy can mean characteristic manner. Verse 18 of Proverbs chapter 30. There are three things which are too wonderful for me, four which I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky. Have you ever just been able to see that on TV or, or seen it in real life? The eagle seems to be just floating on air on nothing and and, and even as the sun heats the earth and the air rises and the currents go up, he just floats and can go higher until he spots that little squirrel or something down there and all of a sudden he shoots down. The way of an eagle, I don't understand it. How does he do that? The way of a serpent on a rock. You know, how do they go across a rock and slither uh, that way? The way of a ship in the middle of the sea, how do they... They call it tacking. Their sails, they can go 45 degrees against the wind. How, how do they do that? In the way of a man with a maid. In each of these cases, the way is unique and specific to each object or entity. Each has a different way. The way of the serpent is not the way of the eagle. They each have a different characteristic. Train up a child in keeping with his or her characteristics or God-given characteristics. Psalms chapter 11, verse 2, you don't need to turn to it, but uses the same word way to describe an archer with his bow and arrow. Psalm 11, 2 describes the wicked bending the bow before they let the arrow fly. It's the way that they bend the bow. For behold, the wicked bend the bow to make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright of the heart. Now, we don't like the target they're shooting at, but the wicked have a particular bent, a particular way that they go about this. Bent and bending the bow is the same word translated derrick, translated way. This is the way that the wicked bend the bow. There's a certain bent. And understanding this use of the word derrick way to man to have a bent or be bending. The Amplified Bible expands Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go and in keeping with his individual gift or bent. And when he was old, he will not depart from it. 
So what is the promise? That he's going to depart for a while and eventually find his way back? Not at all. The promise is he will not depart from it. The word not depart means that he will not turn aside from his way. He's not going to take a side road. He's not going to take a different road. He's going to stay on the way. He may drift here and there, but in the long run, he's going to stay on the right track. She's going to stay on the right track according to the way or bent that God made her to be. This is a remarkable, comforting promise. In every child that God places in your arms, there's a bent. There's a set of characteristics already established. The bent is fixed and determined before he or she is given over to our care. One of my great joys was holding each one of our babies in the delivery room shortly after they were born. Ben was our firstborn son. And eight years later, when our second child, Matt, came along, I held infant Matt in my arms. My first thought was, he is completely different from Ben. He felt different. He looked differently. Even his coloring was different. You know, speaking of coloring, this might be something that only dads notice. But, you know, when Ben was born and little Ben, you know, I looked at him in the the delivery room and he really was purple. And then Matt came along eight years later and basically he was green. Because of the meconium, he, he was failure to thrive in the womb and, and had the meconium in there, so it was a green coloring. And Elizabeth, by the time I got to hold her, she was pink. A beautiful pink, of course. All of you are different from your brothers and sisters if you had siblings. One of you is creative, another aggressive, practical. One of you may be intellectual, another non-academic. Some are interested in technical things, some in art and music. Some may be dreamers and life is simple and happy and others worry about every little thing. My mom used to call me a worrywart when I was a kid. One of you is a night owl and night owl, night night owl, another is a, a morning dove. And how many of you married out of your species? You know, in our family, I'm the night person. I get my second win late at night. Jan, she's a morning person. By 9.30, you know, all her brain cells are, are shutting down. And, you know, we found out about Elizabeth. When Elizabeth's about two years old, we quickly discovered her bent. Jan is a morning person. I'm a night person. And one night, about 10.30 at night, could have been 11 o'clock at night, and Jan was sitting in the chair, and she was pretty much dead to the world, and I was sitting in my recliner. And two-year-old Elizabeth was playing in her stocking feet on the wood living room floor. And Elizabeth, after you know a little while, she ran from the other side of the room and ran real fast towards her mother and slid and came to a stop in front of Jan and said, shouted, Wee-haw! <laughs> and Jan going, Oh no, I've got another night person here. And even at that age, you know, Elizabeth take Jan by the hand, take her into the bedroom, put her into bed, tuck her in bed, give her a kiss tonight, kiss, kiss goodnight, kiss goodnight. And then Jan would, or Elizabeth would come back out and she'd sit on my lap and, and watch TV. And she still remembers watching D. Sartant on Channel 7. And, and sometimes we'd watch Charlie Brown Christmas, uh, one, two, sometimes three, three times in an evening. But Elizabeth doesn't remember that part. Now, in shaping and sharpening our arrows, we can make two mistakes with our kids. And the first is that we use the identical approach with our kids. We want the home to be ship-shape, everyone to fit the same mold. The parent determines the way of the child. And let me put this as bluntly as possible. 
That's not for the parent to do. That's not for you to do. The parent who is wise and sensitive comes to know the way God has for the child and then fits his or her training accordingly. And the second mistake we tend to make with our children is we compare. We compare. We uplift the positive traits of one kid in order to try to get another one to shape up. Why don't you get better grades like your sister? Why can't you behave like your brother? Why don't you fall asleep at night like the other kids do? And again, I'm going to be blunt with this as well. The worst thing you can do to the relationship you have with your child in the quickest way to provoke your child to anger is to compare one child with another. I want to paraphrase Proverbs 22.6 again, and then we'll look at some more of the bents in your child. Another good paraphrase is this. Adapt the training of your child so that in keeping with his or her God-given characteristics and tendencies, when he or she comes to maturity, they will not depart from the training they have received. Now, to put this into practice, we need to be aware of two major bents, two major bents that are built into every child. These are built into your children, prescribed from birth. They're found in every child, regardless of race, color, location, religion, economic status of their parents. First, every child has bents or tendencies towards good. There are certain characteristics woven into the inner fabric of each child that give him or her physical features, emotions, basic personality, abilities. For the lack of a better term, we'll call these good bents. They are productive and beneficial to each child into the world in which he or she enters. And secondly, every child has bents towards evil. Evil. If you think evil is too strong of a term, I just happened to check there are 473 verses in the Bible that speak of evil. There are certain characteristics with every child that inevitably result in conflict, heartache, anxiety, selfishness. This evil bent is inherited from Adam and passed on through mom and dad. It's sinful humanity passed from, from one generation to another. So let's look at the good bent first, the good bent. To see the good bent, turn to the 139th Psalm, Psalm 139, the 13th verse, the 13th verse of the 139th Psalm, page 762. Psalm 139 describes the good bent that God gave to each one of us individually before we were born. It's a remarkable passage, and keep your child or your grandchild in mind as you hear this. You don't have any children, just keep yourself in mind. Speaking to the Lord, the psalmist says in verse 13 of Psalm 139, For you formed me in my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. The word you in this verse is highly emphatic in the Hebrew text. It means you, you, God, and no other. You. Mother nature or natural causes did not form me, nor did I just happen. You, God, and no other responsible for my formation. You, God, form me in my inward parts. The word used for inward parts is kidneys, the heart, 
It includes all the vital organs, the heart, the lungs, the kidneys, the liver, the brain, all that is life-giving and life-sustaining without which we cannot live. You, God, formed it all. The psalmist goes on to say, you wove me in my mother's womb. The Hebrew word weave means to knit together in a mass or, or a thicket. Thicket. It's a picture of the inner workings of the human body in that embryonic fetal form. God weaves together each child just as he wants him or her to be made. A child, even a child who is with special needs, is fearfully and wonderfully with particular purposes made by God. So in verse 14, the psalmist praises God for this thought. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 15, my frame, my bony structure. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. This is so great in the original text. Skillfully wrought is a picture of variegated colors like tapestry or fine needlepoint. The word is used in the book of Exodus when God describes the inner curtains of the tabernacle that they were made, fitted, formed, and embroidered together in special ways so the tapestry revealed a unique beauty. Like fine needlepoint, God knitted us together in secret, it says, in the depths of the earth. This is an idiomatic phrase for a place of protection, of concealment, a beautiful, vivid description of a mother's womb. In that protected place, God oversaw my pre-birth period as he fashioned and formed me like fine needlework, needlepoint, just like he wanted me to be. Verse 16, your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. The word translated seen means watched over. It has been paraphrased. And as an architect, I like this paraphrase. God, you watched over. You oversaw my embryo as an architect would watch over a building under construction that he has designed. You had your plan in mind. You had your plan in mind and you watched over that prenatal period. So I was formed in fashion just like you want me to be. One of the things that we're learning in this sermon series in our Sunday evening video series, and we'll keep stressing it, is that as parents, we need to make a study of each one of our children, how God made them to be, their individual talents, their gifts, their personalities, their joys, their bents. We need to be working with God in shaping and releasing them to fulfill that which God has for each one of them. Then we come to the evil bent that's in every child. David wrote in Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. David is not saying that his mother sinned by conceiving a child or there was something sinful in that, but that from the very start, David came into this world as a transgressor, as a sinner. He had a sin nature. Psalm 58.3 expresses the same thought. The wicked are estranged from the womb. For estranged from the womb, those who speak lies go astray from birth. In other words, you don't have to train your child to be bad, right? 
You don't have to train the child to lie. They, they just do it naturally. You don't have to create a thirst in your child to do wrong things, to do bad things. They already thirst for that. Children are born selfish and self-centered. They wander away from God from the very beginning. Hundreds of years after this psalm, the Apostle Paul wrote, Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. It boils down to this. If as a parent you think you can know and train your child correctly while ignoring the damage in his or her spiritual soul, you are mistaken. You can love your child with all your heart. You can love him or her more than life itself, but you must face the fact that your child is marred and fallen because of sin. He needs restoration. She needs to be in right relationship with God. And the only way his or her problem of, of inherited sin can be handled is through counteraction to be proactive as a parent through a power that is greater than depravity. In the name of that power is the Lord Jesus Christ. For in order for that counteraction to happen, the child must come to know Jesus Christ in a personal way by faith. Well, there's two more points to the outline that we didn't get to, but we'll talk more about them next time.